like to open them to the to the Gospel of John. We're going to spend some time going through this wonderful, wonderful book. We, uh, all of us, uh, rejoice in the, good to see y'all. All of us uh, going to, now, now sister, I don't know who you've been in a fight with, <laughs> but I, I hope they look worse than you do. <laughs> Bless your heart. Oh, well, it's good to see you in John chapter 1. We're, we're, I wrote down several verses uh, and, and references that I, I'm not going to be able to uh, actually go physically and read with you, but I thought it'd be a good idea for you if you had notes. Uh, you could take some notes and write down the references that we're going to mention as we discover the, the, the wonderful, wonderful teachings connected to the book of John. I think, uh, I think most of us would call it our favorite reading. All of the Word of God is good. All of the Word of God is important. Remember Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So we, we rest in that reality. But there's something so wonderful about the Gospel of John. Um, John, of course, and his older brother James that we see so many times together in the Scripture are called the sons of Zebedee in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. They're called by Jesus the sons of thunder. Don't you like that? In Mark uh, chapter 3, verse 17. They belong to the inner circle of fellowship with Christ. Now, Jesus didn't play favorites. He still doesn't. He, he, he doesn't do that. But he does have intimates. He has people that he's intimately connected to, and, 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 and James and John and Peter uh, were, were a part of that inner circle of fellowship. That's why we see them in Matthew 17 in the Mount of Transfiguration. We, we see them going with Jesus to uh, heal uh, Jairus' uh, daughter. Uh, it was Peter, James, and John that were witnesses of that. We we see them in the Garden of Gethsemane. He he took Peter, James, and John to a closer place where he was praying. So so there's a there there's a closeness that Christ had with Peter, James, and John that uh, that was not experienced by everyone else. We need to remember that. We need to remember that John, uh, the Gospel of John, is so special. It's so tender. It's um, so intimate. It could only be written by one that is described as laying on the breast of Christ. He's the one that uh, is pictured leaning upon the breast of Christ at the table of the last Passover. He was always, remember this, he was an eyewitness of Christ. The things that he writes about are things that he actually saw. He was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. He was a pastor to a famous preacher called Polycarp, who was one of the first uh, Christian martyrs in a place called Smyrna. And, uh, and Polycarp lived from A.D. 70 to 160. And he was known and fellowshiped by a historian called Irenaeus. 
who lived in AD 130 to 200. The reason I'm mentioning that as a historical background, because uh, John was a real person. Uh, Polycarp was his disciple at Ephesus. And, um, and Polycarp was an influence in the lives of people in Smyrna and that region. And Irenaeus was the pastor of the church at Smyrna. John is called a pillar in the church at Jerusalem by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. He ministered with, alongside of, the Apostle Peter prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now that's important for us to remember because John is a characteristic of the early church in its development. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, Ye shall uh, be witnesses unto me, first in Jerusalem, then in Samaria, uh, then in, the, excuse me, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1, verse 8. John was a part of that plan, a part of that purpose. He was the last surviving apostle. He was blessed by God to write not only the Gospel of John, but also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. So he's a, he's a critical part of God's plan for uh, the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ, and we'll know more about that uh, in a little while. But he went to Ephesus after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., where he wrote his uh, five letters. His gospel account followed the other accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he wrote this, and this is important for us to remember. The Gospel of John was the last Gospel account written of Christ in his personal ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels. Why? Because they're narratives. Synoptic means together with. They they actually uh, express the... Uh, the how and the what of Christ's ministry. But John is different in this sense. John is an interpreter. John is interpreting the how and the why of Christ's ministry. That's why you find major discourses in John that you don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mar uh, John is unique. He, he actually wrote about miracles that Jesus Christ performed that are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and there's a reason for that. And he tells you the reason. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he writes these words. Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might... Believe, and that believing he might have life through him. This is the purpose statement of the Gospel of John. Out of all of the many, many miracles that John witnessed in the ministry of Christ, he chose seven particular signs. Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to them as miracles, but John uses the word sign. Because sign 
a sign conveys a message. A sign conveys a message. And John, writing at a later date, is going to give us a, a unique view of Jesus Christ. I would be uh, remiss if I didn't mention this. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 10, Ezekiel saw a vision. It was a heavenly spiritual vision. And in this vision, he saw a creature, a living creature that had four faces. The face of the first was that of an ox. The face of the second was that of, um, an, uh, of a man. The face of the third was that of a lion. And the face of the fourth was that of an eagle. And, and it, it, this, this, in this vision, he saw this heavenly creature performing the perfect will of God concerning Israel and Judah. I believe that that was a prototype of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because Matthew presents Christ as the king, and predominantly he was writing to the Jewish people. Um, so he presented the reasons why the Jews should acknowledge Christ as their king. Mark is the ox. He presents Christ as the servant. And, um, and the, the servant doing the will of God among the people of God as a servant. Luke, the physician, is the face of the man because he writes uh, from a doctor's standpoint. He's very uh, physical. He's the one that describes the birth of Christ. He's the one that describes Christ in the garden having a sweat, as it were, blood dropping to the ground. See, he was a physician. So he's going to write about the manhood, the the manhood, the humanity, if you will, of Jesus Christ more than the others. But John, John is the eagle. He's the one that uh, shows us the glory of the deity of Jesus Christ. He carries us higher in our understanding of all the others about the deity of our Savior. So we keep this in mind as we read and study the Gospel of John. And we remember that John's gospel appeared after the destruction of Jerusalem. It, it appeared many years later after the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's gospel provided unique information not recorded before. John's gospel it, it is more theological and didactic, uh, focusing, focusing upon Christ's deity. There's more teaching in the Gospel of John about the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you think that is? Because John's Gospel followed the day of Pentecost. John's Gospel uh, was written during an era where the ministry of the Holy Spirit was so profound and prevalent uh, in all of the then-known world. John's gospel chose eight particular signs. Seven of those signs were performed before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the last one 
which is in the, the epilogue of John in chapter 21, was written uh, after the resurrection, particularly for the, uh, the disciples themselves. There's a lot more I could say. I'm not going to. But in, uh, in John, I want you to, th- this is important. I, f- I feel like there are seven I am statements in John. John, when, when I say I am, we're identifying Jesus Christ with uh, the revelation of Jehovah to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when, when out of the burning bush, God revealed his name to Moses in the desert. I am that I am. Which which is Yahweh. Yahweh. And and, and Yahweh means uh, uh, self-sufficient, uh, self-efficient, self-sustaining. Uh, a being that is uh, not dependent upon any other being for its existence or its substance. He is the I am. And Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He says in John chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. He says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father except by me. In John chapter 15, verses 1 and 5, he says, I am the uh, true vine, or the vine of truth. He is the supplier of all that is true. If you ever wondered what is true, study the teachings of Christ. I am the true vine. And I'm also mindful uh, in connection with that title, I am, how that in John chapter 4, verse 26, he says to the Samaritan woman, I am he. Remember what she said? She says, well, when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And he says, I that speak unto thee am he, I am. In John chapter 8, verse 28, he says to the Pharisees, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He. In John chapter 8, verse 58, to the Pharisees again, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham, I am. And I want you to mark this too. Uh, John's the only one that used that terminology, verily, verily. Amen, amen, from which we get the word Amen. That's where it came from. It means truth, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen. I did a debate. I had a debate with a Hutterite minister uh, in South Dakota one one year where we had a radio program going, and and he challenged me to a debate over the doctrine of election. And uh, when when I used some of the references from John, uh, see, they, they, they speak German. So he had a German Bible uh, and a German translator for the Hutterites that couldn't speak good English. And when he would read verily, verily in the German Bible, he would say, Amen, Amen. And uh, that's when I realized I needed to look up what that means. And sure enough, in the Greek language, it's Amen, 
Amin, which means truth, truth, surely, surely. So John is the one that uses that. He's the only one. Out of the, the apostles, he's the only one that used that. Verily, verily, I say unto you, amen and amen. In John chapter 13, verse 19, he says to his disciples, I've done all of these things that ye might believe, might believe that I am he. And then again in John 18, 5 through 8, to the Roman and the temple guards that came to uh, uh, take him in Gethsemane, he says... They, they, uh, he said unto them, uh, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And do you remember what happened? When Jesus said, I am he, they fell backwards. They didn't fall forward in worship. They fell backwards in judgment. Always remember that. So, uh, and also, uh, with our trusty King James Version, you'll notice that the word he is italicized. Each time he says, I am he, it's in italics. Why? Because in the original Greek language, ego ami is I am. It's not I am he. It's I am. So Jesus is declaring that he is Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. And I think that's important for us to remember as we go through our study of this prologue. Um, I want to point this out quickly, and that's why I wrote it down, so I could uh, do it quicker. Um, The seven pre-resurrection signs, what do they convey? Why? Why did he choose these particular miracles out of all of the miracles? Remember, he actually said, uh, if all the signs that Jesus did were recorded, I suppose the world could not contain the volumes that should be written. So out of literally thousands of miracles... John chose seven to show us the deity of Christ. I believe there's a reason. And I believe that there is a reason they're chronologically placed. Because what they're describing is salvation. Each one of these miracles, the first three miracles are a picture of how salvation comes to the sinner. The water is turned into wine. I hope to preach on that in a little while. The water was turned into wine, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Show us the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that is necessary for salvation. The second uh, miracle was the healing of the nobleman's son, as recorded in chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, showing us that salvation is by faith, not by works, not by human ingenuity, not by human cooperation, but it is by faith that God gives to his elect. The third miracle in order is chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, 
the healing of the para, uh, the paralytic. Uh, remember, oh, what a wonderful! You, you'll, I, I'm looking forward to preaching on that. Uh, wonderful miracle, you know. This you, you can just kind of imagine this man being paralyzed for for 37 years and not able to get down to the water in time to be healed. People walking over him to jump into that water for healing. 37 years. And Jesus comes to him and says, Wilt thou be made whole? Oh, yes, but I have no man that when the angel troubles the water, that I might be the first into the water. Question. Why did Jesus, out of all of that multitude of people, why did Jesus go to this man? Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. And the last four signs actually picture the results of salvation that comes through the power of the Spirit through faith by God's sovereign grace. The last four signs picture the results of salvation. For instance, in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, in the feeding of the 5,000 men, besides women and children, it teaches us that salvation brings satisfaction. There's satisfaction in the saving work of God that can be found nowhere else. Nowhere else but in Christ. In the uh, miracle of the uh, uh, stilling of the storm in chapters 6, 16 through 21, we find that salvation brings peace. Not only does it bring satisfaction, but it brings peace that can be found nowhere else. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, in the healing of the blind man, remember the man that was born blind, it's, you know, it's unquestionable. I mean, this man had never seen a sunrise. This man had never seen the face of his father and mother. There was no way they could uh, explain away this kind of a miracle because it had never been heard of that someone that was born blind would ever be healed. But Jesus did that in John chapter 9. What, what does that say about salvation? Salvation brings light. Salvation brings light or sight. And then lastly, uh, the raising of Lazarus, which is one of our favorite stories, isn't it? In John chapter 11, salvation brings life. So, so these signs were actually written so that we would have a conception of the picture of what salvation actually does and what salvation actually produces in the life of every believer. I wrote that down so I, I, I felt like those were the important points I wanted to make before we got into the actual reading of the prologue, which is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. 
the word, the word, the word. The Old Testament illustration of God's power in creation, wisdom, and revelation, as well as salvation, is expressed in the word, the logos. We need to make a differential, a differential, and it's important. This, this is important. Uh, when you think about the word, the logos of God, you're talking about the living word. Um, the written word in the Greek language is graphia. The written word is graphia. The preached word is rhema. But the living word is logos. This is Christ, the word. Words are used to convey thoughts of the mind and heart. Jesus is everything that the Father wanted to say to man. The Greeks understood that the word logos philosophically uh, meant uh, 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 as a definition of order or reason or ability to communicate wisdom rationally. Now, a word is composed of letters, right? Am I right? A word is composed of letters. Well, according to Revelation 22, verse 13, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning and the end. What is Alpha and Omega? Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And you put these letters together and they form words. God uh, uh, created everything through his word. Have you ever thought about this in Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning? God was in the beginning and God said let there be light. He spoke the world and the universe into, uh, into existence by his word, by Jesus Christ. That's why we find references at like Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 and other uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 and many other places where Christ is identified as preexistent. He existed with the Father even before time began. And God the Father spoke creation into existence through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Peter said in Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verse four, 5. The Bible is the written Word of God. We can trust it. This is what God says to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when He illuminates our mind and heart, we're able to understand it. We're able to uh, comprehend it. I think that's one of the lessons that we find in this uh, first part of John's Gospel. Because uh, he, he, he kind of, he starts in the beginning. He, 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 he brings our mind back to the power that uh, is connected to creation. And, and that power is sovereign. See, there wasn't no one. There, there wasn't anyone that helped God create the world, the stars and the universe. Nobody was there to help him 
do that work. He's sovereign in creation. Well, he's also sovereign in providence. He's sovereign over all history. History is his story. He's the writer of history. He's the originator of providence. That being true of necessity, it is also true that he's sovereign over your salvation. So John picks up where the others leave off. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Lagos. And the Word was with God, and I got news for you. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was light. And the light is Jesus Christ. The light, the truth, the saving work of God is in Jesus Christ. And the light shined in darkness. What kind of darkness? Moral darkness. What kind of darkness? The darkness of depravity. The darkness of a sin-cursed and broken world. The light shined in that dark and unfriendly place nearly 2,000 years ago. And the darkness comprehended it not. There was no comprehension. Uh, uh, The word comprehend there could be translated uh, um, overcome, uh, overtaken. Uh, The world could not... uh, undo the light. It could not suppress the light. It could not hinder the light. See, when Jesus Christ came to the world, He didn't come to make His best shot. He didn't come to give men a chance for heaven. that, That kind of ideology and teaching is unbiblical, unsound, and ungodly. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And brothers and sisters... He got the job done. Through the blood of His cross, I'm telling you, He is a successful Savior. But the darkness comprehendeth it not. It cannot overtake the light that Jesus Christ brought. Isn't that good news? Isn't that a great way to start the Gospel of John? He doesn't doesn't waste time. He, He doesn't waste any time. So what's he going to do in this, uh, in this first chapter? What is he going to do? He's going to introduce our minds to the fact that Jesus is the light. And there's a continual contrast between, in John between light and darkness. And darkness can represent the flesh. Uh, darkness can represent uh, the world, uh, the Christ-rejecting world. Darkness can also represent Satan. Satan is the prince of darkness. And ignorance. And then he's, he's going to tell us that he's, he's the Son of God. In verses 14 through 18, Jesus is called the Son of God continually all the way through uh, John. I remi- I, I, I'm mindful of that actually there are seven individuals that called him, uh, physically called him the Son of God. John the Baptist called him the Son of God. Nathaniel 
called him the Son of God. Peter called him the Son of God. The healed blind man said he could do, he could do no miracle like this unless he was the Son of God. And of course, Martha and Thomas, they specifically said he was the Son of the living God. In verses 19 through 28, Jesus is called the Christ or the anointed one, the Messiah, for whom both the Jews and the Samaritans were looking. In 129, which is what I hope to speak on this morning, uh, he's called the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. The blood of lambs slain in the Old Testament only covered sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ was shed to remove sin once and forever. In John chapter 1 verse 49 through 43 through 49 he's referred to as the king of Israel. It's interesting you know the the people that witnessed the miracles of the the, the bread and the fishes they wanted to make him king according to John 6 verse 15. That's why he left and sent his disciples uh, to cross the, the the Galilee, and he went up away. He he separated from them because they wanted to make him king because of the miracle. That's the wrong reason. They wanted to make him king because of what they could get out of him. Did you know that even today, people claim to be Christians and followers of Christ not because they believe that he is the Savior and that he is worthy of that uh, title, but but they follow Christ to see what they can get out of Him. It's called the prosperity doctrine. All I got to do, I, you know, I can name it and claim it. I can nab it and grab it. I can whatever. Uh, all of this false teaching is, is, is about what I can get out of following Christ. Jesus rejected that. He separated Himself from those people. But what's interesting to my mind is that when Jesus finally came before Pilate and acknowledged himself to be the king, you know what the people said? We have no king but Caesar. Isn't that ironic? The very same people that wanted to make him, crown him king because he could feed them, rejected him in the end. And uh, that fickle, and I call it fake, Faith, that is not saving faith. We uh, know the difference between superficial and saving faith because we recognize that Christ is, is worthy of our, our worship and praise even if I'm poor, even if I'm sick, even if I fall and hurt myself. He's still king. He's still Lord. He's still worthy of praise. That's why I'm going to come to church even when I've got a bruise or a cast. Or uh, Why? Because he's worthy. He's worthy because he is king. And then in chapter 1, verses 50 through 51, he's referred to as the Son of Man. The title actually comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Christ is God's ladder between God and man, between earth and heaven, revealing God to man and then bringing men to God. So he says, I am, I am the Word. The darkness does not comprehend it. Even today, the darkness does not comprehend it. 
In verse 6 of chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. I want you to remember this as you study the book of John. The word sent is found over 60 times. It's important. Uh, it, it, it actually connects uh, to the meaning of the word apostle. Apostolis is the word that is translated here. Um, it means to one who is sent with authority. One who is sent with authority. Uh, God is still in the sending business, praise His name. I believe He sent me here to minister to you this morning. If He didn't, it's worthless. If He didn't, I'm taking up your valuable time and it's a waste of effort. See, God is still in the sending business because He's in charge. And, and here's this man named John, and this is John the Baptist. Uh, but we need to remember the Trinitarian character involved in the sending, involved in salvation. Uh, did you know that it takes a Trinity to save a sinner? Somebody says, oh, I don't believe in the Trinity. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. You, you, you don't believe what's required, what's necessary for your salvation. You, you don't understand that it takes the Father to choose those to to receive salvation. It takes the Son to redeem those that are chosen to salvation. And it takes the Holy Spirit to actually and, and, and uh, uh, vitally save that sinner all through time. Salvation's Trinitarian. And it's interesting, it's the Father that sent the Son to save sinners. It's the Father and the Son that send the Holy Spirit. It's the Father that sent John as the forerunner. It's the Son that sent forth the 70. Remember Luke chapter 10, 2 by 2. And then later in Matthew 28, the 12 sending them uh, through the world. Thus, the mission of the church is Trinitarian and God-centered. If uh, uh, it, it is commanded and performed by God... For his own glory. So they're here, they're, here it is. There is a man sent from God. Um, whose name was John. Much could be said there. Verse 7. The, the same came for a witness. To bear witness of the light. That all men through him might believe. Now somebody says, well see Brother Jeff, that's why I'm a universalist. I believe that God is ultimately going to save all men because of verses like this. God is not willing that any should perish, they say. So, so, so the witness is to all men, therefore all men are eventually going to be saved. Some are going to be saved this way and some are going to be saved that way. I've heard all of these arguments, especially on the foreign field. When you go to other countries, you meet this all the time. I found uh, when I go, especially in Asia, uh, when I'm preaching on Christ being the, the, the Savior, I don't, I, I, I don't find any resistance to that because a lot of the Hindus and the uh, religions of the world, they, they kind of add Christ to their polytheistic view of God. They just kind of add Him as one of the gods, you know. But where I find my trouble... And persecution and opposition is when I tell people that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. 
That's when we get into some really tough times and opposition, intense opposition. And I believe that John is a great uh, example of that. Uh, John the Baptist uh, was, was going against the flow. And, and this is interesting, and this is a side note, but bear with me just a minute. You know, when we made our, my wife and I made our anniversary trip to Israel two years ago, uh, we went to uh, um, a, a place where uh, they trained uh, priests and, and actually did a lot of translation work. Um, and uh, I, th- I think I'll forego that story because I, I, I don't have time to tell that. I'll tell all that. But forgive me. Uh, but that just came to pass because John, there was one record that was written in the first century that said John the Baptist had actually studied in this place, Qumran. And that, boy, that just really shook my tree, you know. And these were aesthetics. These were the Essenines. These were people that were sworn to poverty, you know, and all of that. And they were committed to recovering and preserving the Bible, the Old Testament Scripture. Uh, so I think you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That, that's, that's where this work was done. And one of those documents says that one of the people, the students there for a short time, was named John. And I had to think, I wonder. I wonder if John the Baptist had access to that uh, place because that place is one mile exactly one mile from a place called Bethabara where John the Baptist baptized Christ. Interesting, isn't it? I, I, just, uh, I just think about that in the context of, of this verse. Uh, you know, the same was for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now, the word all in the scriptures, does not always mean uh, all without exception. Sometimes it means all without distinction. It doesn't always mean all without exception. Sometimes it means all without distinction. And in this verse, it's all without distinction. John the Baptist was carrying the message of the coming Messiah to all without distinction. He didn't make any difference in the people he was talking to. He would talk to the poorest of the poor. He would talk to the Pharisees and the wealthy Sadducees. He would talk to anybody about the coming of the Messiah. He wasn't afraid to do that. He was not that light. Now this is important. John the Baptist was not the Messiah but was sent to bear witness of that light. He was a man sent from God. He was a man with a mission as a witness. He was great, uh, but he was also less than Jesus. Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Of men born of women, there was none greater than John the Baptist. But I say unto you, he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. If I were to ask you a question right here, if I were to ask you a question, 
Who was the last Old Testament prophet? What would your answer be? I think most of you would say Malachi. Am I right? Most, most of us would say, oh, well, yeah, I know. Malachi. Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet. He, the, the Malachi is the 39th book of the Old Testament. He's the last prophet. Wrong. It was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last Old Covenant prophet. That's why Jesus acknowledged him as being great. He was a transitional figure between the Old Covenant and the New. So here, he's, he, he's not claiming to be uh, the Messiah, but he does uh, what God called him to do, what God sent him to do. In verse 9, he says, he, he was the, uh, the tr- That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And the world here is cosmos, which is a metonymous term. Literally, literally when we think about... Um, the, the meaning of the word world. We'll get into this when we go to John 3.16. You need to understand this. Uh, the term cosmos is a collective term. It's a metonymy. Um, we, we could talk about the world of uh, the, the mineral world. You know, there's a, a world uh, of, of minerals in the soil. We could talk about the plant uh, world if you will. We could talk about um, the, the, the universe, the universe itself being the world. Uh, the term world is used, cosmos is used in that way. So we're talking about, uh, we're talking about a collective term when he uses the term world. He says he was in the world, that's the earth, the physical world, and the world knew him not. That is the world of men or humans, mankind. They knew him not. Why didn't they know him? Question, why don't men know him today? Same reason. Same reason. You can't know him until he reveals himself to you. He is the initiator. He is the one that reveals himself. So John is saying, I don't have the power to reveal. I don't have the power to save you. But the one that comes after me does. He came into his own. Verse 11. Have you ever wondered about this? He came into his own, but his own received him not. I believe he's talking about the Jewish people. So, so see, here's another world. The world of the Jews. Then there's a world of the Gentiles. See, uh, world is used as a metonymy, as a, uh, a, a term of a collective meaning. Well, he came into his own, and his own received him not. There's an hour sermon in this right here. But as many has received him. To them gave he the power, exousia, the right, the privilege to become or be made like unto the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
And most people stop right there and they say, see, it's up to the sinner. You know, the sinner has to do the receiving. The sinner has to do the acting toward God. God sent His Son to meet man halfway. I've heard this recently. God sent His Son to meet men halfway. Now, you have to meet Him halfway and receive Him. Then, you can experience regeneration. There's a Greek term for that doctrine. Hog wash. <laughs> never, never allow them to read verse, tw- uh, verse 11, uh, ver- uh, excuse me, verse 12, without verse 13. See, because verse 13 is what qualifies it. Which were born, which were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. See, see, uh, in other words, he's saying that it's not of man. It's not of uh, man's action. It's not of man's compliance. It's not of man's ingenuity. It is all God. God is the one that sent His Son into the world to save a people. And that people are going to come to know Christ. They're going to be brought to Him sovereignly by the Holy Spirit. And they are going to be adopted into the family of God. This is an adoption verse, friends. The word adoption simply means the placing of one son into the family of another. One uh, taking out of one family and placing in another family. That's the word adoption. And that's what God does by free and sovereign grace. He does that for His elect. The world of His elect. It's not by blood. It's not by human agency. It's sal- salvation is the product of God's sovereign will. It's not because of lineage. It's not because of nationality. It's not because of race. It's not because of man's works. But it is because of the will of God. Regeneration is an internal change wrought in us by the Spirit of God resulting in a new nature that resembles God. Adoption is the action of God whereby He admits those that are born again uh, to the conditions and privileges of being children of a sovereign God. I, I think it's important for us to remember that salvation that comes through Christ, and John is fantastic about presenting the theology of the saving work of grace, the saving work of the elect. And, and we'll find out more and more as we go through the book of John, especially in chapters 5 and 6. But, but then he says this, and I rejoice in this. Verse 14, if you want to, you could read this out loud with me together. It's just so powerful to me. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. See, what he's talking about is that God in Jesus Christ uh, was incarnate. Uh, God took on human flesh. Why did He do that? Why would He do that? In order to experience as a man 
the things that he could never experience as God. You see, God can't hunger. God doesn't get tired, weary. You see, uh, God cannot die. Yeah, he cannot sin. Well, Christ didn't sin either. But, but to experience the things that, that, that God in heaven could never experience. He came into earth to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Hebrews 2 verse 15. This is powerful. The word, the message, the revelation of God Himself was made flesh. And we, by God's grace, beheld, witnessed His glory as the only begotten of the Father. Now, angels are in the Bible called sons of God. Right? Well, they're sons of God by creation. You and I, as believers are sons of God by adoption. But Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father. He's unique, one of a kind. There'll never be another. And Brothers and sisters, that's what John wants us to see. The eagle, he, what he's doing, he's carrying us into the highest place we can be to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. Full, full pleroma, full to overflowing. Full to overflowing. Full of what? Grace and truth. And I'm so glad to know what that means. It means that He never runs out of grace. Aren't you glad of that this morning? He he didn't run out of grace back over there in the day of John and in the day of the apostles. He didn't run out of grace there. For 2,000 years, he's he's been dispensing that grace to his people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe, calling them by his sovereign grace, quickening, giving them life so that they would have the light of truth. And until he turns on the light, they'll never know the truth. Do you know the truth this morning? Have you beheld him by faith? Have you embraced him? Have you said, Lord, here I am. Use me. Mold me. Shape me. Um, Help me to be your hands to my generation. Help me to be your voice to my family. Help me to be your witness to the people I work with and the people I live with in my community. (coughs) He's full of grace and truth. I've got two minutes left to make a quick point here between 15 and 18. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, Brother Jeff, that doesn't make sense. 
We know that John the Baptist was born at least six months before Jesus was born, and yet John the Baptist says he was before me. What is he talking about? He was talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. He, he was talking about the eternal character of Christ. He was in creation of this world. He was existent before I came along and before you came along. That's what John was saying. And of His fullness, that pleroma, of His fullness have all we received, grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law, you need to understand, the greatest figure in Israel's history was Moses. They, they looked to Moses for everything, right? But did you know that his authority was so limited? He's not the one that made the law. He's not the one that wrote it. He was the um, instrument through which it was given, right? But watch his comparison to Christ. He says the law was, the law, uh, was given by Moses, but grace and truth came. By Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the author. Uh, Jesus is the architect. Uh, Jesus Christ is the provider, the supplier of grace and truth. Moses never could be. And by the way, the law never was given to save man. The law was to reveal to man his need for salvation. Last point. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Father, which is in the bosom of the Father, which, which is a precious verse, He hath declared Him. He hath declared Him. God Himself is like the sun. While we cannot see it, we cannot see anything without it. God is light. God is here. God is worthy of our praise. And God sent His only begotten Son into the world to save sinners like you and like me. Let's rejoice in Him this morning and rejoice with John and understand why he began his wonderful gospel in this way. Thank you for your good attention. Let's take a break. God bless you.